Okay. Um, last time, as we close, we're talking of the adultery test. In Numbers 5, uh, lepers, those who were unclean because of the dead body or had a discharge, were, were placed outside the camp. We were told a little bit about the guilt offering. And then we talked about the adultery test where a husband who suspected his wife of adultery, he brought her to the priest before the house of the Lord, before the temple of the Lord, or the tabernacle of the Lord at this time. And um, the Bible tells us that he uh, spoke and said, if you've been guilty of sin... Um, may this curse come upon you if you're innocent may uh, you may it be shown and she said amen and they wiped off these curses that he wrote on a scroll and put them in the water and she drank if she was innocent nothing happened if she were guilty how is the punishment described several times Thigh waste away, abdomen swells. Okay, abdomen swells and thigh waste away. Now, Sarah asked a couple of questions uh, to me the other day. One, basically it came down to this, Sarah. I said, is, you said, you were thinking as we were reading this, that this this is not an immediate consequence. It's not an immediate consequence, but if it was not immediate... How did the husband feel free to take her back again? So, how did this work out? How did this work out? Was it immediate? Was it that when she drank, right then her abdomen was swollen so much that everybody gasped and knows that she's guilty? And if no harm followed, everybody could see immediately she was innocent. What's the answer to that? The answer to that is we just don't know. Uh, that's, that's a good question, but I don't know the answer. It's just difficult to understand how that worked out. The fact that it was such a dramatic event, I don't have any problem if all of this worked out immediately, but I don't know that the text necessitates that either. Now, if she was innocent, I want you to notice something that's stated in verse 28. In verse 28, if she was innocent... uh, and she had not defiled herself and is clean, she would then be free and conceive children. So that's part of the blessing. Not a curse, but a blessing here. You may remember there are a couple of times in the Old Testament that a person uh, having their womb closed was a penalty for wrong. For example, in Genesis 20, in the house of Abimelech, because Abimelech had taken Sarah, and Abram prays for her, and the Bible says that the wombs of Abimelech's wives are healed, and they're able to have children. One of the things that's remarkable about that is Abraham is praying for them, and Abimelech's house is having children, but it's before the birth of Isaac. In Genesis 21, it's before Abraham himself has children. There's another passage in Leviticus 20 and verse 20. Leviticus 20 verse 20, where the Bible tells us if there's a man who lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness, they shall bear their sin, they shall die childless. Seems like in this passage that being childless is a curse for sin. Now, doesn't mean childlessness was always that way. Hannah doesn't have any children at first. It doesn't seem to be a penalty for sin. First Samuel 1, uh, Samson's wife or Samson's mother, I should say, in Judges 13, had not had children. And that doesn't, it's not specifically tied with a penalty for sin. But, um, so, what exactly what is the penalty? And, and, and what, whatever that means, that your thigh wastes away and your abdomen swells, 
Some, people, some think it refers to death. Some think it refers to death. Some think it refers to just slowly these things happen and don't cause death, but, but that she's like this and not able to have children. Some people think that it means that she loses her child that she has conceived. Is that specifically said, though, in the text? It's not specifically said in the text. One reason I mentioned that. I had someone mention to me recently that they had encountered someone who used this text as a pro-abortion text. But but now, that would be a stretch anyway, wasn't it? Wouldn't it? Because as a result of David's sin, the child born to Bathsheba died. Does that mean that child wasn't a person? No, it was fully a person. But you see, sometimes sin is so destructive and so deadly that it brings suffering on innocent people. And one of the ways God warns us about the seriousness of sin is to show it may have consequences for our children and for our grandchildren and for other generations to go. All of that shows us the seriousness of sin. I don't know exactly what it means that her abdomen swells and her thigh wastes away, nor how quickly it became apparent. I, I don't, but I do think this was a graphic illustration. It's a graphic illustration that God sees and God knows. And God vindicates the righteous and God convicts those who are guilty. Those who are guilty will not escape His notice, but those who are righteous will be vindicated. And it was a vivid declaration of the importance of marriage faithfulness, of being faithful in marriage. Now, it also had bigger messages, didn't it? Because the marriage relationship between a husband and wife is sometimes used as a picture of the relationship between God and Israel. And just as it showed that a wife should be faithful to her husband, so it also demonstrated that Israel should be faithful to God. That would be a message that would be there. Now, do you have a question about that? Anything that we didn't cover that we should have? And I'm sure... That there are some things there that we didn't need to cover. But we, we did need to cover, we didn't. Ryan? The the process is a little unclear to me. Um does the bitter pain come regardless? No, I, I think that the I think that the bitter water, the water of bitterness is particularly associated with guilt. Uh and and the bitterness it seems like there is no, there are no ill effects if she is innocent. So in twenty three, the priest writes. That wasn't numbers, by the way. Uh, but in, in twenty three, the priest writes the curses in the books, washes them off into the bitterness. Yes. So there's this concoction that has the curse. She drinks it in twenty four, and it enters her and causes bitter pain. Yes. Then the priest takes the offering and then makes it seems like she drinks afterwards she makes the woman drink the water yeah I think verses 24 through 27 it seems like to me Ryan that they are assuming a guilty verdict that those verses are assuming a guilty verdict and verse 28 comes back and talks about an innocent verdict it seems like to me that's the case you know, you can look okay. at it, but I, I think I know it is called the water of bitterness or the water that causes bitterness. But I think that is because of its bitter effect. If she is guilty, I think so. Now, could I be missing it? And and I know I I, I don't try to drink water with dust or dirt in it. Um, I, I sit one day on a plane by a person who said that he um, investigates water for a living and he was very 
disparaging about all the water that we drink. Uh, and, and I've tried to forget that every time I get a drink. But um, so... But I, I don't. I don't think it's going to be that little dust that's going to cause the pain, regardless of whether she's innocent or guilty. Well, I, I had thought that the pain would come with the curses. Like that's yes evidence of God's. Like she's ingested these curses that's causing these pains. Yes, he off the priest offers this sacrifice, and either that goes. She drinks it again, and that either goes away or she swells up because. Yeah. That sacrifice has been rejected. Well, you yeah. worded it well. You worded it real well. Could you do that again? No. Okay. okay. <laughs> I forgot exactly how you said it too. But it's the the curse is kind of washed off in the water, and she ingested is part I think what you said. And if she's guilty, it bears its food. If she's right. innocent, nothing. When I was thinking, if if the pain comes regardless, like that's like an indicator. All right, this is this is working. This would also be make the husband hesitant, perhaps, to send his wife through this process because it's going to be like she's going to suffer regardless. It just depends on yeah. is she going to suffer more fully because of her guilt, or is she going to be relieved by the Lord because of her innocence? Okay. Now, I'm not this. I'm only. Thinking this in the moment, just so you know. Yeah, well, I know you're thinking, and you're thinking this too, because we're thinking of that poor husband. If she was innocent when he got back home, and um, now, but were there any? This is a question. Were there any safeguards in this? And, And now, what I'm about to tell you is not in the Old Testament, but this does show us how some Jews practice it. The writings of the rabbis stated that she could not be taken to this adultery test unless she had been previously warned in the presence of her husband in front of a couple of witnesses against secluding herself with a particular person. So they practiced it that you didn't do this as a first alternative. This was a last resort after a husband had warned his wife in the presence of witnesses. Now, Philo, who was living in Egypt, in Alexandria, Egypt, around the time of Jesus, shortly there, or about, well, part of it overlapping with the time of Christ. And he says that what happened is that both the husband and wife argued their case before judges, before she was put through this adultery test. Mm -hmm. So at least the way it was practiced among later Jews, it wasn't, again, a first resort. It was kind of a last alternative. And I think that helps us because I know there are things about this that do sound strange. And it's particularly, it's like with, forgive me, but like with COVID tests, we've had somebody bring his wife there every week. Um, you know, I mean, you're going to get a little tired of it. You know, But I think that there were some safeguards involved. And now, this is a question... Uh, that we asked the other day, and, and believe me, I don't like to deal with this, and I don't like to make everything. I, I resent it when everything is made a male versus female issue, or a black versus white issue. Uh, I thought we're all in this together, and we are in life, but we forget that sometimes, and we're con- con- constantly polarizing each other. But for some who would say, and it is likely that we encounter this, oh, that's sexist. Because you don't have an alternative situation where a wife accuses a suspected husband of adultery. Well, there were a couple of cases in the law where women had provisions that, that men really didn't. For example... Remember in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, that a wife is married to a man. He dies without having children. She marries the brother of the man. And the first child of that relationship is considered the child of the brother who had passed away. What happened if that brother wasn't willing to fulfill his role? 
If that brother wasn't willing to fulfill his role, she brought him to the judges of the town and um, they took off his shoe and she spit in his face and says, Thus it shall be done for the man who does not build up uh, his brother's family. And I'm paraphrasing that. But it's in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. Those are things that a woman had as a recourse in certain cases uh, where you don't see any kind of legitimate equivalent for a man. In uh, Deuteronomy 22, uh, Deuteronomy 22, if a man found, if a man is involved um, in a sexual relationship with a young lady, uh, then the Bible says if she's not engaged, uh, they he she is to pay he is to pay fifty shekels of silver to her father. He he was not innocent in this matter. He was not innocent. He pays a dowry price to the husband, and he cannot divorce her all the, her, his days. Now, we talked a little bit about divorce in the Old Testament on Sunday night. There are a couple of cases in Deuteronomy 19, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 22, where you could not divorce your wife. In verse 19, in verse 22, in verse 19 and verse 29 of Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22, verse 19, verse 29. Cases you couldn't divorce your wife. But, um, and this, this was one of them. Um, anything else though? Sarah? So, so she drinks the water twice? I did not. When I read it, I was taking it that way. And I, and I don't know. I know Ryan was. I, I took it kind of as a summary. Yes, and and and, and uh, uh, that that he kind of lays out the process, and then it's kind of a, it's summarized. And and I don't know if I missed something. I might have missed something in saying that, but but it seemed like to me that she's drinking it once and not twice. And you were stating you thought she was drinking it twice. Correct. Okay. I was wondering, yeah. Okay, it seems like to me it's once, and it's kind of a summary, but I'm not, and I'm not claiming I got full knowledge of this. Craig, you also had your hand up. Yeah. Um, it, does this still work in conjunction with the law in Leviticus 20, where if someone is found guilty of adultery, they and the person they committed it with would be put to death? What I would say is remember that that law is giving the, the, the harshest sentence that can be applied there, but it wasn't always applied. What would be a biblical evidence of that? Okay, David Bathsheba would be one where God says, I put away your sin, you're not going to die. I'm also thinking about New Testament times when Joseph wants to put Mary away privately and doesn't want to divorce her publicly. By the way, you see when she's committed fornication or adultery, there was no question he was going to put her away. Remember I said the other night that some Jewish groups in the first century, they absolutely felt you had to divorce in those kind of circumstances. I don't think Jesus says that. But... Uh, he's going to divorce her. The question is whether he's going to do it publicly or privately. It is fascinating to me, the Bible says there he's a righteous man and doesn't want to disgrace her. Even though he believes she's guilty of sin, she, he is trying to show her mercy in doing this as quietly as possible. So I take it that this would have been a situation that probably would have worked out most cases that the man puts her away. Now, in that circumstance, I don't know how likely it is that a woman who's put away in disgrace in such a public way would marry again. I don't know. Uh, but a lot of times when we say in ancient Israel this happened or not, we're talking about 1,400 B.C., and we don't have a lot of evidence outside the biblical record as far as what happened in those times. Okay, good questions. Um, 
but be careful. Don't don't ask too many that I can't answer. But let's go into Numbers chapter six and the Nazarites. Number six, the term Nazarite is used in all these verses in this text used seven times. Seven times. Now, the term Nazarite is transliterated. What's the difference between something being translated and transliterated? Transliteration is a character-by-character substitution for the sounds as opposed to changing the word to what it means. Yeah, instead of translating it, saying this word means this in English, you just take the equivalent of the letters and then relate them in another language. Like, baptizo does this uh, in the New Testament, just transliterated baptism instead of translated by immerse. So this is a transliterated word which could mean something like consecrated or devoted one. Probably has that kind of meaning. Now also a couple of key words are the words separate. Sometimes it's translated abstain. Verse 3, to abstain from wine or strong drink. But, but this word is from the same Hebrew word of the word separation or dedication which is used in this context, I believe that's about 12 times. Now, one of the reasons these words are all important, these words are all connected to the same Hebrew root word. It is transliterated here. It's transliterated here. It is translated in those passages. Here, a verb form of the word to separate or to abstain, and here another noun form of the word, separation or dedication. But you see that these words that are constantly recurring in the text are all interconnected. They're they're all uh, the same uh, Hebrew root word. Negatively, what are the Nazarites separated from? Positively, what are they separated to? That's one of the things that we want to look at. One of the things I also wanted to mention before we look at the text, I wanted to look at that word defiled. The word defiled is a key word which was used in chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 6, verse 12. One of the reasons I want to mention this is because that was a key word in chapter 5, especially with the adultery test. We read it, first of all, in verse 3, in that section about excluding people from the camp, but you read it then in the adultery test at least seven times. Maybe that's eight times. But... These texts may be connected because of this reason. Because both of them talk about, uh, use the word defilement. Now, what we have in number six with the discussion of the Nazarite, first of all, the instructions for the Nazarite in verses one through eight. What happens if you become unclean in verses six in verses nine through twelve and then verses thirteen through twenty one, the sacrifice is offered at the completion of this vow. Some people could be Nazarites for life, but generally that wasn't the case. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, neither shall he drink 
any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes all the days of his separation. He shall eat, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall come on his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of the hair of the hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because his separation is on his head. All the days of separation, he is holy to the Lord. Okay, the Lord speaks to Moses. When a man or woman makes a special vow. Did you notice that? A woman can be a Nazarite. Now, throughout the text, the pronouns used will be masculine, but it is open to everybody, a man or woman. This is different than priesthood. The priests were only males. But a Nazarite could be a male or a female. When a man or woman makes a vow, where sometimes in the Bible you think of people making vows that are not Nazarite vows? Jephthah. Jephthah, one of the first ones, Judges 11, he vows he'll sacrifice the first thing out of his house if the Lord gives him victory. Remember Jacob in Genesis 28, in verses 20 through 22, he said, Lord, if you bring me back here, I will give a tenth of all to you and make some other promises in connection with that. But but vows were, were common among the people of Israel. They vowed, Lord, if you deliver me in this circumstance, then I will do this or I will do that. But a Nazarite vow, particularly in this text, as he gives instructions for the Nazarite vow, and I may have misspelled some words on the board, um, just grant that to temporary insanity. But if he, but the text tells us that he is the Nazarite is to do these things. First of all, he's to avoid. The text says first wine or strong drink, but it goes further than that, doesn't it? He's to avoid any grape product. He can't have the skin. He can't have the seeds. He can't have the wine that results from it. He can't have anything to do with that. That's in verses 3 and 4. Now, the priests in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, in Ezekiel 44, verse 21, they were forbidden to drink while serving in the tabernacle. But here this applies to the Nazarites across the board. One of the things that makes this much more fascinating in that culture than ours is because there just wasn't an abundance of beverages to drink at that time. For someone to say they're not going to drink wine, strong drink, grape juice, anything that comes from the grapevine. That is quite a statement in that culture. So he's going to abstain from all these things. He's going to abstain from all these things. Second, he is not to cut his hair. He's not to cut his hair. That's stated in chapter 6, verse 5. Now we're going to make some comparisons to priests and some comparisons, some contrast. Priests were told to let the hair of their head grow long in Ezekiel 44.20. They were told they could trim their hair, but they were to let their locks grow long. Here the Levite is said not to cut his hair during his days of separation. Now, why would there be that instruction uh, that may sound uh, a little bit strange to us, but 
Remember too, there are places in the Old Testament. For example, the priests were told not to cut their hair in Leviticus 21.5. All the people of Israel were told not to shave their head at, at, in Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, in mourning for the dead. These were things that were often associated with pagan religions too. And that seems to be the context, especially in these two passages. So, they're avoid great products, they're not to cut their hair, and they're not to defile themselves with the dead, with the dead body. And this is in verses 6-8. through Not to defile themselves with the dead. Now, if you were a normal priest in the land, we read this in Leviticus 21, verses 1-9. through The normal priest in the land could take part in the funeral of a father or mother or brother or an unmarried sister. A normal priest could. But, if you were the high priest in Leviticus 21, verses 10-15, the high priest could not take part in a funeral for any of those. The dedication that was required of a Nazarite, the dedication that was required was even more intense than that required of a normal priest. He couldn't drink any wine or strong drink ever while the priest was limited while serving the tabernacle. He was not to uh, cut his hair at all, and he was not to defile himself for any of the dead. Uh, his dedication was somewhat in comparison to the high priest in Leviticus 21, beginning with verse 10. All of this shows us the seriousness of this commitment. And and this leads us to think, well, what purpose did these Nazarites serve in the land of Israel? What did they do? What what and and be thinking about that. Be thinking about that as we see some of this worked out in history. Now, there's the dilemma. You could avoid you'd avoid the great products, you're not to cut your hair, you're not to defile yourselves for the dead. But what if you're just standing there minding your own business and someone right beside you dies? Sarah is acting out right before us. Uh, in verse 9, if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles the dedicated hair of head of hair, then he shall shave his head on that day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the doorway of the tent of beating. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. At that same time, he shall consecrate his head, and he shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite, and he shall bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering, but the former day shall, the former days shall be void because his separation was defiled. What this is saying it is someone dies suddenly beside you and you are defiled. You've broken that vow not intentionally, but unintentionally. What you did is you brought a bird for two birds, one for a burnt offering, one for a sin offering, and you shaved your head and just started over again. You offered a burnt offering, a sin offering, and then you offered a a lamb, it says, for a guilt offering. By the way, let me state something here. This goes back to our last class. John, you asked the other day about the word uh, in Numbers 5, verse 2. He's unclean because of a person. doesn't specifically say dead person. Actually, the response I gave you was based on thinking this was another word. The word that is used here 
is the word uh, nefesh. This is the word that's used in 5.2. This is the word that's used in 6.11. Usually that word means something like soul or uh, like, for example, it's used in Genesis 2.7 and man became a living being. It is not generally translated dead. But just like the context of number 611 shows us clearly he was dead. The word that's used for person in 611 is the same word used for person in 66. And that is specifically modified by being a dead person. So we are to assume the person in 611 is also dead. See what I'm saying? Do everybody see what I'm saying? And so this is a word that does not generally carry with it the idea of death. But in these contexts, because it speaks of the defilement that the person brings, I think it is speaking of of death. But I, I was thinking of that in another word that starts with noon. I was thinking that was the actual word um, when it was not. Now... There is a record in Jewish writings of a woman who had taken a seven-year Nazarite vow. This is this is between the end of the Old Testament and uh, around New Testament times. And it comes to us from Jewish uh, rabbis' writings that a woman had taken a vow for a Nazarite vow for seven years. The seven years were almost completed, and this exact thing happened, and she started again and kept the vow for another seven years. So we know that this was practiced in Israel. We know this sometimes happened in Israel from from those very places. Any question right there or idea? So this was a voluntary thing? This was generally a voluntary thing. Unless your parents... Your parents could do it, or God could make that choice, as we'll see later. God made the choice with Samson. Whose parents made the decision? Samuel seemed to. Um, It was usually temporary. Notice a key phrase in the section, in verse 4. All the days of his separation. Verse 5, all the days of his vow of separation. Verse 6, all the days of his separation. In verse 8, all the days of his separation. Generally temporary. The, the sacrifices in verses 13 through 21 talk about what happened at the end of this period. So generally it was voluntary. Generally it was temporary. Were there lifelong people who took this vow? Are there some that took this vow for others? Yes. Yes, we see some of that in the few references we have to Nazarites. But, yes. But let's see what they offered as sacrifices. In verse 13, this is the law of the Nazarite when the days of his separation are fulfilled. He shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without defect, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without defect, for a sin offering, and one ram, without defect, for a peace offering. Now, there are five basic types of offerings in Leviticus 1-7. through And we've just touched on three of them in one verse. There was the burnt offering, there was sin offering, and peace offering. Now with a peace offering, there was also an offering of grain. And you see this described in verse 15. A basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offering. It's another type of offering in uh, Leviticus 1-7 through and their drink offering not even mentioned in Leviticus then the priest shall present them before the Lord shall offer up offer his sin offering and his burnt offering he shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord together with the basket of unleavened cakes the priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its drink offering 
The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting, apparently very public, and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. The the hair is kind of an offering there, isn't it? He offers a peace offering and he offers this hair that burns on the altar. Now, the portion of the sacrifice that belonged to the priest in verses 19 and 20 is mentioned, which, by the way, was even more than the priest usually got in the peace offering. To be a Nazarite, your dedication was extraordinary and that shown even in the part the priest got of the peace offering. In verse 21, this is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation in addition to what else he can afford according to his vow which he takes so he shall do according to his law of separation. One of the ways to show how solemn a moment something was is to see the variety of sacrifices offered. And this variety of sacrifices shows how solemn moment this was and how serious being a Nazarite was. The only kind of offering that wasn't mentioned in verses 13 through 21 is the guilt offering, and that was mentioned in verse 12 if he'd been defiled. You don't find all those offerings pulled together like that often. You do at the dedication of Aaron, his high priest, in Leviticus 8. And you do in the situation where a leper is pronounced clean in Leviticus chapter uh, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. Now, okay, we've looked at some of this. Nazarites throughout the Bible. Um, who are some people we think of when you think of Nazarites? Who do you think of? Samson. Samson in Judges 13 through 16. Who else? Samuel, we've already mentioned. We'll look at that in just a moment. Or Samuel 1. Anybody else? Now, Samuel's not specifically called a Nazarite in our text, but but maybe not. Uh, But... Can you think of anybody else? Was Paul in Acts? Paul takes a Nazarite vow for a temporary period of time. Remember, in Sincrea, Paul shaved his head because he had a vow. The Bible says that in Acts 18, verse 18. I don't mean to write so low that you can't see it, but I've got a couple of other things to fill in before then. Um, who? What, what about after that, the, the nameless gentleman in Jerusalem? Okay, there were four in Jerusalem, remember, who'd taken a vow and Paul was going to purify himself with them and pay their expenses. That's Acts 21, verses 23 through 26. Now, people, y'all are forgetting one. John the Baptist. Uh, Okay, I was going to quote the verse first, (laughs) but you got it. John the Baptist was, remember, Zacharias is told, you will not drink wine... He will not drink wine nor strong drink. It doesn't use the term Nazarite. But it does say you don't drink wine or strong drink. So all of these may have been Nazarites. Now, Samson's, Samson was said in Judges 13 to be a Nazarite from the womb. We've stated generally to be a Nazarite was a temporary thing. Was a temporary thing. But the Bible says in, in Judges 13 verse 7 that he was going to be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Here Samson does not take this vow voluntarily. His mother doesn't take the vow. Uh, he is told by God this is what he's to be. In Judges 13, 4 and 5, Judges 13, verse 7, Judges 13, verse 14, the instructions were given to Samson's mother. Now, I'm going to read this, and I want you to tell me what's new 
here in this passage. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. What what, what new detail was added there? Not eat anything unclean. Was this just assumed to be the case with a Nazarite? It's stated only here in connection with the Nazarite vow. Only here. But again, we don't read a whole lot about Nazarites in the Bible. First Samuel. Why do we say that Samuel may have been a Nazarite? Because when Hannah was praying for a son, she says in verse 11, If you give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of his life, and a razor will never come upon his head. Now, when I say the word Qumran, what does that mean to you? Community people. Okay, it was, it, was, it was a place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The, it, so it's particularly how I'm using it. There was a scroll found at Qumran of Samuel that has in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. This was, this was a line, He shall be a Nazarite forever. In the Hebrew text, now that, that is a, uh, that they, that, that was in a Hebrew text known to those people. It was in 1 Samuel 1, 22. He will be a Nazarite forever about Samuel. Now there's another passage in the Old Testament that talks about Nazarites. There's not many in the Old Testament. But an important one is Amos 2, verses 11 and 12. In context, God is talking about all that He told, all He did for Israel. He said, I raised up your sons to be prophets and your young men to be Nazarites. That's a statement of what God did for Israel. But Israel in their sin told the Nazarites, drink wine. And told the prophets, do not prophesy. It's Amos 2, verses 11 and 12. They tried to encourage the Nazarites to break their vows. They tried to silence the prophets in those passages. And, you, uh, by the way, Bernice. Do you remember Bernice in the New Testament? Bernice is a sister of Agrippa. That may look like their husband and wife in Acts 25, 26. But they were supposed to be brother and sister. She is talked about in Josephus as taking a Nazarite vow. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is talked about in early church history as taking a Nazarite vow. So this is a subject not only tied to the Old Testament, uh, but also you see it uh, at times in the New. What was the point of Nazarites? What's the whole point? Sounds like it's akin to fasting. Certainly, some comparisons can be made to fasting. I mean, why? Why would you fast? Yeah, yeah, that's right. To draw close to God. To draw close to God. Yes, and that would be here. And what effect would this have on everybody else? Because this is not something like fasting you're told to do in secret. I was going to say it would be an obvious sign of that person's dedication to God. And, I mean, Absolutely. it reminded me of, at least I'm fairly certain that's what the note I wrote at 2 in the morning said, um, it reminded me of the song, the, they'll know you are Christians by your love. They'll, so there's something about this strange behavior which will cause people to realize that's what this guy is doing because of his love and yeah. devotion to. And it's particularly a witness to God's own people. You know, sometimes I think we think, if, if we're not saying it to the world, it doesn't make any difference. To God's people need reminders of the holiness God calls us to. Would the outsider have understood what being Nazarite was all about? They wouldn't have understood it. But an insider would. But my point is just, I think it was a living illustration of dedication to God. 
It was a livid, vivid illustration of dedication to God and commitment to God. They wore their commitment very outwardly in a way not to call attention to themselves, but to call attention to God and what He wanted of all the people, of the holiness that He called them to, of how He called them to be dedicated ones. He called them to be consecrated ones. They demonstrated that in every aspect of their lives. Even the way they treated their hair. And that's that's really an interesting uh, an interesting thing to ponder. Um what else do we find, Brian? Do we, do we see a connection with Jesus in the Nazarite vow? If, when we think of the priesthood, we think we see Jesus as like you know, prophet, priest, and king. This seems pretty pious and holy. Do we yes. see that? Like, I do think that we are to somehow see Jesus in this. But we'll have to think through that because remember they said of John the Baptist, it says John came eating and drinking. And they say he has a demon. And Jesus came eating and drinking and they say a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it wasn't in Jesus' outward abstinence from from any kind of product of the grape that you saw it. But you do see in him that dedication or commitment to God. I need to go back and look at that vocabulary and look um, at and, and see that because. But you know, it's you, we know it's got to point to Jesus touching the dead and healing them. Right. Yeah. Raising the dead. In a way, he violates those aspects, but he does it to bring life, not to bring death, but. But but I need to go back and look at some of the vocabulary here. John, you had a comment about Romans twelve one and two about just living a, a living sacrifice committed to God. You know, we we demonstrate our dedication to Christ in a very vivid visual way. That's good. People, I, I have to apologize for this. I knew it would happen uh, at some point, but for our first time, we are behind our syllabus. Um, so, we'll try to see what we can do on um, Sunday. But God bless and thanks for being here. There is a syllabus? Well, allegedly. Allegedly.